Hey, it's Arrow, and this is PodFest, episode number 34. Three back-to-back conversations with real people of entertainment, politics, science, medicine, or cooks in their own kitchen. PodFest 34 features an extremely personal conversation with singer-songwriter, music legend, Gordon Lightfoot. Our second conversation puts us right in the middle of an amazing creative journey with actress Grace Park from Hawaii Five-0 and Battlestar Galactica. And then we're headed into the thoughts and writing process of author Greg Brennick, who gave us the book Impact in 2021. This is PodFest 34. <laughs> We are unplugged and totally uncut with Gordon Lightfoot. Well, I'm good. Happy on board. Absolutely. This album here is a total gift to fans and newcomers because you're sharing with us a side of your journey that is just mind-blowing. It's like you're singing right to us. Well, you've invited us over to your house and you're saying, hey, I got some songs I want you to hear. Yeah, I, I thought for a long while about orchestrating it and, and re-recording the whole thing. And, and changed my mind after I'd been dealing, thinking about it for about a year. I found that material almost two years ago. And while cleaning out my office, while, while cleaning out my office because we had to move, and I found I, I, when I first looked at it, I hardly recognized about the six or seven of the titles on there. And when I played it, it, it sounded real good, and I said, well, I'll take this all and rewrite it, and we'll take it up to the studio, and we'll do it all over again, and... Uh, spend months and months and months doing that but we all have uh, extended families and we're on tour and you know the stuff sounded real good to me and the fans are going to love this stuff I, could, I, I knew that I knew that the fans were going to love it when you take it out on the road will it be just you and the acoustic guitar when you, when you go into the songs from solo no I'm going to choose uh, a couple of the tunes there do one solo and I'm going to orchestrate one of them and I'll just do the two because I have, we have such a solid show right now that we don't want to, we don't want to mess around with the show we already have, and we don't, we also don't want to run too long either with our, our show. So we're going to have to fit them in. We're going to have to, something else is going to have to go, because we're working in a, in a framework of time, you know, when doing concerts. I've always loved the way that you have the flow because you've been to Charlotte so many times and I'll go there and you take us for a journey. It's a storyteller's journey in a way that you allow us to escape and to step into the process of creating music and displaying your art inside our imaginations. Thank you. And, and it's, it can be done just with five keys. Willie Nelson said, all you need is three keys, two keys and the truth. Two, two keys and the truth. I, I have five, five, uh, five keys, and uh, so that if I if I spread myself out when, while writing this stuff, I mean everything's going to sound different, and which is what I want. Everything to sound different. Speaking of that truth, the song just a little bit. You ask a lot of questions in here. Did you ever get tired? Did you ever get tired? Were you asking yourself that question when you were writing the song, or was there somebody sitting there where you're asking them, "Are you getting tired?" I'm asking them. Yep. I do. I'm, I'm asking the folks. I'm asking the folks out there. Thinking about the backyard slope and the garden and the the dogs and the whole scene, you know. It's like a, it's a Sunday morning thing. 
Or is it a Saturday? Maybe it's a Saturday morning thing. It's a Saturday morning song. <laughs> well, it definitely opens up the imagination in the way to where it's, you know, it's like even with the song Emotion, you, you really bring us in by using words that we speak on the everyday street. Is that difficult as a songwriter to keep it that real? I, I like that one. I, I like that one a lot. Uh, it, it's about, you know, the, the, that's about a guy trying to find his way in, into a woman's heart. <laughs> and, of course, it can, go, it can be the other way around, the woman to the man, whichever. Whatever the heck it is. Whatever the heck it is, yeah. That explains why you're talking about, you know, discovering new things to say and stuff like that, because you've got something new inside your heart when it comes to the song Emotion. Yeah, I like, I like, uh, I like writing songs about relationships. It's, it's, it's good. I've, I, I can draw material for that, from my own experience. The album we're talking about is a new album solo from Gordon Lightfoot. I think it's mind-blowing that you're sharing this experience with us. But what are, what are you feeling on your side of the microphone and song? I hope they don't think I'm getting lazy about this. But this stuff's too too good. Like like some of, a lot of it could have been been rewritten and even formats changed in the uh in the songs themselves, but it's just the sound of it was so good that I figured I better leave it alone. But but it it took many months to decide whether to do that. In the meantime I tried doing some things by synthesizer and I tried adding some rhythm tracks and stuff like that and it, it sounded phony. It, did, it didn't sound good. So I, and so it, it finally came down to, you know, why don't we just let it go and and, and make it uh, just with the guitar and just the vocal alone we'll, we'll give it that, that it's going to make it so different than anything I've ever done. And it sounds pretty good because it was done at a time when when I was sort of at the peak of my delivery because I had some some health issues uh, just very shortly after that that really put me out of business like for two and a half years. And uh, and this stuff was never really examined and really looked at. And, and there I was, and I found it while, while cleaning out my office. So it's just one of those things, and I'm glad that it, uh, that it showed up. I was able to put it to good use. Are there any other songs that are hiding that you'll one day come across? Oh, there's uh, there, there are always three or four uh, 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 sitting around, but you, but, but you know, if, if I'm going to put stuff out, you know, ten songs is the is the magic number. Uh, I I had five that were that were for sure, for sure uh, already when I put this album together, and then when I found five more on this this missing piece to the puzzle, so to speak, I found five more. Actually, I found six, six more, but one of them I didn't use. The song, the song "Better Off." This is one of those songs that I would love to see on a live stage because I, I, I connected to it immediately, and then I wanted to listen to it over and over again. I, that, that's my favorite one. I, I hope I can play the changes. I'm going to have to learn the, uh, <laughs> relearn the changes to that one. <laughs> of course, I've got a guitar player with me who will be able to play through that one. Uh, maybe I'll just. Uh, uh, I'll twiddle my thumbs. <laughs> I'll twiddle my thumbs and I'll sing. Yeah, I can see it now. My guitar player will play the changes. I used to be able to play those chord changes, but I, I don't know if I could duplicate that now or not, you know. One thing listeners need to understand, if they've never seen you live in concert, I love the way that you set up your stage where you're out there in front and and you it's like it's like you're standing there saying, you know, the songs you can sing along, but but we're going to go in this direction. And I just love the way that you command the show like that. 
I, I can grab a re- I'll grab a request if I can find a spot to drop it in. Right. But but we but we don't get. And it usually comes like two or three songs later when you get it, when you feel the opening because. Uh, but I do. We, we we take we take requests. We do every once in a while. How how tough was it to get Wreck of the Edmonds Fitzgerald on the radio? I mean, I mean that in in those days, I mean it always had to be three hour, three minutes and fifteen seconds. But here came this song that just basically took all over radio. Well, we we uh, when they when they asked if we could uh, edit that song, uh, I did it by editing the instrumentals on the single. Oh, so we never lost any of the verses. And uh, we worked that out. There was a way you could do that. I could do it by taking eight bars out of the, the middle of each of the guitar solos. And there's a, it's got a couple of double guitar solos on it, too, so I was able to bring them down to singles. We got it down to 415. It, it was like a matter of getting it on the top 20 stations. We had to do that. I didn't mind doing it. I, we, I did it gladly. Well, congratulations on Solo. I can't wait to see you live in Charlotte again, because every time you come here, you always give us the best of the best, sir. Well, thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to it. We love being out there. You be brilliant today, okay? Okay. Bye. First, some sounds from the movie Freaks, and then when we come back, we'll be unplugged and totally uncut with Grace Park. By definition, any freaks who are running loose are illegal. Abnormals are dangerous, and we can't let them live free. Chloe, hey, someone could have seen you. Sorry, Dad. We have to stay hidden. They look just like us, right? Where are you going? strong like your mom was. You knew my mom? I saw mom. What are you talking about? What did you see there? They took her away. She's not dead yet. What? Out. We are never getting out of here alive. I'm coming out with a girl. Look what you've done. I saved us. Good morning, Grace. How are you doing today? I'm very well. How are you? Fantastic. Man, you are in so many places at the same time. How are you holding up on that when, when you have so many different acting things going on at the same time? Oh, that's a good thing about all these streaming platforms and ways to get it. It's like you're actually only in one place, even though it doesn't feel like it sometimes. But yesterday, I was up at 1.30 to catch a shuttle to get to, uh, I was in Arizona, to get on a flight, and it's like, you know, there's only one of you, but sometimes it feels like you're navigating so many things that it'd be so much easier if there was more than one of you. 
you know, when I was young, I kind of wanted like a clone. And then <laughs> ended up being able to work on a show where I got to be a clone. Figure that. You're in a brand new movie called Freaks. This movie gets inside your head and heart. What was it like to be on the set of this? Because, I mean, this one's really going to play with your head. Yeah, the, I mean, the storyline is so fantastic because uh, the premise is uh, you're, uh, you're having the world unfold for you, but from the perspective of a seven-year-old child. And this girl has been actually kept inside her inside her home, this like house that's falling apart by her father, who's paranoid, and we're trying to figure out, is he lying? Is he telling the truth? The world out there does seem pretty threatening, and then she does finally get lured out by Mr. Snowcone. Now, you're playing, you're playing Agent Ray. I mean, for you to put this together, and you're the one that gets to go in there and try to figure out what the story's all about, what, what, what was it like for you to really kind of get into the scripts on, on this film? Uh, I was definitely intimidated because, you know, of the character that they had wanted me to build on from, and um, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it was, I don't want to say it incorrectly, so I won't say, but the the film, that, or the clip they had me watch was from, um, he I think he won a, an Academy Award, so it's like, you, you can't really match that, <laughs> no matter how hard you try, um, but you know, going on the set, I got to work with Bruce Stern. I was told to be absolutely ready for him, and of course, you want to do your best. So um, it was it was really great working also with Adam and Zach. They wrote a fantastic script that really hooked me in by probably the third or fourth page. It's like I'll tell you that I was so tired and busy that I was I was exhausted that I already planned. I had already said no in my head, <laughs> and I started writing the email to my agent saying that I was saying no, and then I realized I hadn't read any of it. So I was like, I have to at least read some of it so I can tell them that I had started, and I was like, it's not for me. And by page four, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, good. And I was like, no! And, but it was such a fantastic ride, and I'm, I'm just really excited for other people to be able to um, experience in the movie form. You know, I just I just got to read it in black and white on a page originally, and then do your best to, to bring it to life. You, you talked about Adam. This is actually, this movie was kind of pulled from his own personal fears with his own daughter, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that's right, because he was a, a new father, you know, years ago, and um, I think he had to look at the world in a different place. It's quite different when you just are yourself. Like, what do you have to slog through the world? What do you think you have to protect yourself from? You know, security or finances or, I don't know, a dark alley, whatever. And then when you have a child, suddenly the world feels very different. You're trying to protect in a different level, and you care about different things, things that didn't matter to you when you were, you know, just you. When when they were doing the filming, they did it from her size, where they were, they were what she saw in the world. Did you, that creative self, go down in where those cameras were and look up as well, just to kind of get a view of what those directors were wanting? You know what? I don't know if I really recognized at the time that that's what they were doing. And so I think maybe I would have done that a little bit more. And, and it could have been that they had told us that. But, I mean, you're still shooting the scene like a regular scene, but it's how they'll... You know, like the noises, or, or is she having visions? And, you know, what is it like? Like, what does the light look like when she's trying to look out, you know, the boarded windows or through the mailbox slot that's been covered with duct tape? Things like that. So it's, there's this little kind of element of like the unknown because it's not so clear. And there's a little bit of wonder or mystery involved. And so I think a lot of that is done by, you know, their direction. And uh, maybe some 
special effects. They really make Bruce Dern stand out in this in this motion picture in the way that through her eyes, all of a sudden here's this vision, and and as the viewer you go oh oh, and you you get that feeling where it, it kind of just sucks the air right out of your lungs. I know I have goosebumps. I know he plays Mr. Snowcone, which has got to be like the best character title for sure. But yeah, he he plays as somebody that she doesn't even know who he is, but she's so drawn towards him. So you're drawn towards 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 him as well. But at the same time, you're not really sure if you should trust him either. <laughs> <laughs> Did you learn anything from this movie? Because it really does. It, it's, it's so up close and personal, and we can all relate with somebody in this film. Oh, that's so weird. I would never really think that because, I mean, you have Mr. Snowcone, you have a paranoid dad. I'm like, what are you telling me about your life there, <laughs> Arrow? <laughs> In the way that we all have our own fears, and we all, you know, and it's one of those things because I mean, I, I, I don't want to call myself an introvert, but there are times I just don't want to go outside, and I'll create my own stories as to why I'm not going out there. It's, it's just an evil world. I love that. I love that you just said that, and I do think that it really does depend. I mean, that's so, so great that you just said that because it depends on what we focus on, what is told to us. You know, is it like the perspective of what you're seeing online or in the news? I remember when I visited the states during, I think it was Anthrax and 9-11 had happened. And it was like, no matter what was on the television, it was like, I felt like it was closing in on me. And it was like, wow, it's like they'd really created this fear. And like, there's the whole world, yet you felt like you were, like the air was being sucked out of the room and it was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And like, in a way, like that's what's going on for this little girl. That's everything that she's being fed. So it's actually very telling, like, what are we informing ourselves with? At a point in my life, I lived in Hong Kong, and I remember the news was very different over there. You know, you listen to the BBC, um, and it depends on what is being fed to you, and certainly, you know, wherever you're at, you're going to hear more local news, right? But you do want to be a savvy uh, consumer and, and figure out, like, how much is being told to you so you stay listening and how much is being told to you because it's the truth. And so we all want to be critical thinkers like that, right? You just shot me back to a huge part of, of what we no longer talk about, and that is 9-11 with the anthrax scare. I, I, in radio, they had to close off a certain section of the building because we the, the, the part where the mailroom, because they didn't want anthrax at the radio station. And that's a part of that journey that we went through in 2001 that nobody's talking about, and yet you just brought it up. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, that was a pretty scary time, and I think it was like, you know, when, it's sort of like, you know, when you're young, uh, generally, like, you sort of think your parents can do anything because they're so much bigger and smarter than you, and they can, like, move cars and, you know, feed people, and all this stuff happens that you don't know how to do, like, you're learning to tie your laces, right? Something like that, or, like, get, walk from school to home, and then, um, and then there's a point where your parents, like, when you get older, like, you realize they can't do everything, and that kind of becomes a scary point. And, like, when you sort of grow up in, in, a, in a place where there wasn't, like, uh, a war on, like, for maybe for your generation, and then suddenly something like that happens, it's like you realize the vulnerability, and it can feel pretty very jarring and uh, really disorienting. And you realize, like, security is really kind of your, a mindset and right. what you make of it. And there's a lot, you know, and I think a lot of us probably on a daily level maybe even there like a minute to minute level it's going you know on the undercurrent but we don't really necessarily recognize it because everyone wants to feel safe the movie we're talking about is freaks which opens up on september 13th was there a was there a scene anytime during this movie when it was being shot that you're going man i gotta keep it together this is even scary for me <laughs> um 
I don't I don't necessarily think so, but I certainly remember when I was reading the script, it was quite a ride and I was was so hooked within the first few pages and I couldn't get through that script fast enough. Uh it was so good and I'm just really excited for people to to be able to go through the movie uh themselves and I think it's it's probably scarier watching it than yeah. than shooting it, I think. <laughs> Yeah, because it's just intense because it get, it definitely gets inside your head and heart. So now people are going to want to know what is it like to be Boomer and Athena on Battlestar Galactica to be both characters. What what do you go through as an actress on this? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I did. Ha- I started with one character uh, in the beginning, and I I think when we introduced the second, I wasn't really quite sure where they were going. And you don't really know what that character is because it was actually just pretending to be the second character. Athena was just pretending to be Boomer. And so I was just pretending the whole time, but yet the storylines kept diverging. And then you realize his inner life starts to grow and is, is quite different. And then it was, it was strange because uh, I think maybe a couple years ago after it finished, I'd started going through my different roles that I had done in my life. And I, I think if I was sitting or standing, I just, I actually just remembered the character, and then I let my body move to what it felt like to hold that character. And Athena was was quite different than Boomer. They had different outlooks, different internalized. Boomer was far more uh, in a struggle, inner had a lot more inner conflict. Um, but I think Athena's struggle was more external, what she was fighting. And so it was interesting because one had so much more hope. Athena had so much more hope, and Boomer was a lot darker because yeah. uh, I don't think she really had that as much. It was more futile, and she's more um, there's more probably despair on a on a lower level. So it was interesting to to go between them. And the one time that I had to do both the characters, I was a bit freaking out because I was like, "How am I going to pull this off?" <laughs> it was a lot easier than when James Callis had to do it for his character Baltar. He wow, that was amazing. But afterwards, I had seen a um, uh, uh, physical therapist, like kind of massage therapist, but not exactly. And she'd said, and I'd finished shooting the scene with the two different characters, and she said, whoa, what happened to you? And I was like, why? She goes, I've never seen the two sides of your back so different. Oh. I was somehow trying to, like, embody and morph these two things, and I was, like, separating and yet trying to put them together. And she just happened to say that. She didn't know anything about what I was doing. And I was like, I definitely took note. And I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> See, I, I've always believed that, that the actors, they, they take a piece of the, of the characters with them from that day forward, and it changes them, and they've got to figure out how they're going to become themselves again. Well, that's a good point, because sometimes if the storylines are really heavy, and depending on the way you act, there's different methods, and so some of them, I think some people can do theirs very lightly, hold it quite lightly, but I think the school that I came from, not so much, and there was a point, but I was so tapped out, it was actually during Battlestar, I was like, nope, not doing this anymore. Part of me was like, no, la, 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 la. I showed up to work. It was a very heavy day. It was like, it was a good, like a very dark day that we had to shoot. And I was like, I'm not doing it. And I was like skipping around, you know, like the prison, the, the set. And the other actor, you know, we started shooting roll, action. And then he, uh, he had the phone in his ear. And then I, I went over to the phone in a good mood. And I just looked at it, locked eyes with him. And he was in this super heavy you know, dark, dense place, and I immediately dropped in. And I, in a way, it was actually good because she wasn't ready for what she was going to hear. But, you know, sometimes you you don't have to try so hard. And 
in real life, sometimes you get hit hit with news and all of you knows what to do. You're not like, wait, I wasn't ready for that news. You're going to have to come back and tell me in a year. You know, it's like we're we're actually very exquisitely sensitive beings. You know, we try to make ourselves numb sometimes, but not really the best way. And, uh, you know, it makes life a little bit better. To be in that place of numbness and stuff like that, mindfully, do you write each day? Are you a daily writer, a journalist? You know, it'd probably be a lot healthier if I did. <laughs> There's something called the morning pages. I'm not sure if you heard of your Yeah, sister. Julia Cameron. Yeah, three pages a day. Do you do that? Yes, I, I've been doing it for 25 years. Wow, can I give you like a medal or something? <laughs> Anyone that can do something every day besides like, you know, eating and going to the bathroom and sleep. I think I just, I find like it's really, it's it's very beautiful that you have that vision, that, that dedication. You're able to be so consistent. I would love to be able to do that. Um, I was just told this by someone at a retreat. She said, do you do destructive work because you're, you know, you're in a creative field? And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, if you're in a creative field, you have to do destructive work every day. Yeah. I was like, okay, tell me more. And she said, essentially, if you are so creative, you need to do something to also balance it out and break things down. So whether it be mindfully washing the dishes, you know, shredding paper instead of putting it through a shredder, actually just tearing it with your hands and then putting it in the recycling, whatever it is, weeding, something where you're kind of breaking the things back down, kind of maybe to the smaller pieces because, they, you know, it's sort of, I guess, you can see it as a balance or a flow that was really interesting. I, I do a defrag journal every day. I, I, I do my norm, my normal writing at five or four thirty in the morning every day, but at four o'clock in the afternoon I do a defrag, which is exactly where you've got to break it down, break it down. Otherwise, then then you walk into your night without you know because I'm a, I'm in radio, I'm an actor too. Wow, how do you defrag it? What do you do? Do you just write down? You just start asking yourself questions. You you just go in there and you go, okay, so at, at 11 o'clock this morning, this is what you were doing. This is where your mindset was. How, how do you want to work on this? How, let, let's break it down. Where, why did your mind go there? Wow. Oh, my gosh. Can you send me your journal? I think that's amazing. Wow. Is that? I, that that's, I'm really very intrigued. Thanks for sharing that. Now, what, what you need to do is you need to reach out to Julia Cameron. She is one of the nicest people that you will ever meet. And she'll, I mean, it's just one of the most mind-blowing conversations you'll, you'll have with, with the person that started the Morning Pages. You, why, did you have an interview with her? Do you know her? I did, I did, and it's, oh my God, it, it, and she is just so peaceful, and, and I, I love her latest one, because she does the book where she goes, the, the moment you get your first AARP uh, card in the mail, and she goes, that's when you know life is changing. What's that? That's, that's for old people, where they get the discounts at the movie theaters and things like that. <laughs> that's hilarious. I'm like, what am I missing out on? Tell me. <laughs> And it, it, because what happens is a lot of people close down their creativity once they hit a certain age. They think, oh, I'm too old. When in fact, the older you get, the more creative you get. And you've got to learn how to use that energy. Ooh, wow. This is so exciting. I was just talking to another friend who said, like, she was talking to, I don't want to say his name wrong, so I won't say it, but um, he's in, is in the health field and said, like, oh, absolutely, scientifically, we can all uh, live to 120. Yep. So her goal was to live to... No, yeah, so her goal is like, I'm living till 130. So I'm, I'm planning from now. I was like, holy, that changes a lot of things. <laughs> well, I'm glad you gave yourself permission to be creative because through you, a lot of us get to, you know, kind of release from the real world, from Battlestar Galactica to Hawaii Five-0 and now this movie Freaks and stuff like that. It's just you give us that space and place where we can we can just be ourselves. Well, I think that, you know, everyone, like you said, like everyone is creative and you're doing that on a daily level, if we could all do that, because we are all inherently creative, 
like how much we'd probably feel a lot better. I think I should actually be doing that because to me, it's a job. I punch in, I punch out, and you know, some people think it's like a lifestyle, and it's like to me, it's quite just a job. And I, I guess it is creative, but you know, it's like you're doing some someone else's work, and I kind of wonder like. You know, I, I know at some point I gotta just do my own, even if it's just really small, even if it's like a little flip book or I don't know, something tiny. Um, you just gotta from the beginning to the end, a small creation within your own hands. That's like when I cut commercials, I always think about that listener. We're gonna change that listener's life because they're gonna buy that car, because they're gonna go buy a house, because they're gonna buy this. We're in the we're in the business of pe- changing people's lives. Yeah, and you want them to to know that, to be mindful about that. So what are they choosing? And to go towards their vision, their goal. You know, you don't just want them mindlessly choosing. You want them to kind of be like, I'm doing this because this is what I want. This is where I'm going towards. Sounds awesome. I love it. you got to come back to the show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you, Grace. Oh, wow. What a pleasure. Uh, And I want, I'm very now even more interested in Julia Cameron. I want to talk to her. She's got a total of 14 different books. It's a journey. Just do it one page at a time, and it'll really bring a lot of peace to your soul because creative people, oh my God, those voices in our head and heart, they get too loud sometimes. Yeah, and the thing is, like you said, but everyone's creative. So, like, if everyone did a little bit of that, like, how much better it would be? And the thing is, I've, I've heard about this. I actually had a group of actors. We got together for, like, once a week for two years, and we based it on The Way of the Heart by Julia Cameron. And... Uh, I think I didn't even get to chapter two, to be honest. <laughs> I have like two of the books. I could like take 10 steps and, and grab it off the shelf right now. But yeah, they're pretty new, <laughs> pretty shiny looking. <laughs> You'd be brilliant today, okay? Wow, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing, Errol. I appreciate that. We are unplugged and totally uncut with Greg Brenecka. You're great in non non snowy California right now. Oh man, yeah. That, you know, I'll tell you the thing. One of the biggest shockers of California to me was we we flew out to San Francisco. We got a convertible. Oh, we're going to do the Pacific Coast Highway with the top down. No, we froze our butts <laughs> off, man. That's a it's different cold. world out there. Oh my it's god. Cold, yeah. <laughs> but you know, being out there in California, it kind of reminds me of the, I grew up in Montana. Meteors were a major part of our lives because that big sky country is wide open. It's a canvas. Yeah, you could. There's no light pollution up there. You can see everything. It's great. What what got you into meteors? I mean, what, was it the fact that things were falling, or was it just the the great mystery of what are these things? Uh, I got into it just because I liked being outside, uh, and I, I kind of was a trained as a geologist in undergraduate, and then got into graduate school, and and uh, you know ended up just taking a class in in meteorites, and just really found them fascinating objects, and, and the fact that we could learn so much from them about the early solar system. Uh, that's where I got hooked, I guess. The name of the book is Impact. I'll tell you, there's a lot of science classes that better be putting this inside their rooms because you unveil some things I had no clue even take place. Yeah, thanks. Uh, there's a lot of lot of stuff we get uh, from meteorites that I think a lot of people are, are very surprised at. And I certainly was one of those people when I was taking this class in, in graduate school for the first time. And, and that's, like I said, why I got hooked is because there's just so much that are contained in these things. Uh, they're such diverse, interesting objects. Well, 100 tons of extraterrestrial material is added to the Earth every day. What? What? How? Do, how? <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Yeah. Like it, I like to think of it as 75 Volkswagen Golfs are coming our way every day. Uh, but luckily, they're, they're just small bits, uh, you know, basically in dust form. 
Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of dust, uh, that's, that's kind of fallen from outer space. And, you know, some of these rocks are, are, you know, softball size or, you know, even larger sometimes, but most of the material we get is in the form of dust. Uh, but it's a, it's a lot of material. Yeah. When I read that about the hundred tons of stuff coming down, the first picture I had was Wally out there and just, just putting around, just trying to clean up the planet because if it looks, are we really a dust collector? Uh, you know what? That's what gravity does. Uh, exactly. You know, we're a dust collector. The, the sun's a dust collector. Everybody's a dust collector. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, now what's, what's this that meteorites uh, actually stop wars? What, what happened here? So actually, it was uh, it was an, uh, I believe it was a situation in, in ancient uh, Mesopotamia or I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, not Mesopotamia, Anatolia said the wrong thing. Uh, there was a, a battle going on. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a cosmic event and both parties just kind of were like, ah, they looked up and were like, you know what, why are we warring? What, what are we doing? And they just kind of stopped. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of a really interesting period of history, which kind of both, both sides agreed to just kind of lay down their arms because they had something really interesting happening in the cosmos. Well, meteorites are part of the reason why I enjoy summer here in the Carolinas, because we get those showers that last, like it can be three, four nights in a row. Right. Yeah. They're really spectacular when you get to see them. But they've got to be on the horizon. You talked about eye pollution before. That's the one thing that big cities, you know, they, they kind of miss out on the opportunity. Yeah. Well, I mean, light pollution is certain, certainly a big problem for people who enjoy looking at the stars. Uh, you know, you need to be in places like uh, rural Montana. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great one, of course. Oh, my God. That, if it wasn't a meteor shower, then it was sonic booms that would just scare the hell out of you. so so now in essence are meteorites aliens uh i guess how you define alien uh they're certainly not of this world so uh you know this this world being earth uh so yeah i guess in that case they are aliens well because they Uh, they come down here and they change what we're doing i mean it's part of our evolution yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they have certainly you know changed basically everything about Earth. Uh, it would it would nowhere near be the same place. It'd probably just be a a dead hunk of rock if it wasn't for for meteorites. Um, so. Yeah, I, I keep waiting for Pfizer to announce that. Well, we were we, we we know we had COVID taken care of, but boy, we really have it now because it's coming from a meteorite. We're we're, we're going to take some of the minerals from this thing, and and it really works. <laughs> I, that would be, you know, that would make people notice meteorites for sure. I, yeah. I, this book would have nothing on that. Now, one of the things that, you know, the, the skies and stuff like that have always affected different religions and things like that. I, I, I didn't know that meteorites really actually, uh, you know, touched the religious world and, and it changed some people. Absolutely. Uh, you know, probably one of the most important turning points in, in Christianity, for example, uh, is that St. Paul, yep. um, you know, originally was this, the story goes, he was certainly against uh, followers of Jesus. And, and then he was, you know, on this trip and, and this large meteorite airburst happened, knocked him off his horse. Uh, he went blind for a few days and, and then he basically converted and became this, uh, evangelist for Christianity and, and really kind of turned Christianity into what it is today, uh, as opposed to just a, a small following. And that actually, you know, is very consistent with a meteorite airburst. And, and, you know, we see a lot of those types of, uh, medical things happen in, in, you know, there's a, a, an airburst in 2013 in, in Russia in which people went blind for a few days wow. and something fell off their eyes, like in the, like in the story in the Bible. So, you know, this is, this is kind of, you know, based on science is, is this can actually happen. Uh, and, and so that's one of the major inflection points in, in Christianity. And there's, there's quite a few more, um, as, as well, but, uh, 
yeah, it's it's really remarkable um, how how much uh, these things have have affected different religions. Are they pieces, parts from planets or from from comets? What how, where, where are they coming from? This this dirt, this dust. It's it's kind of a mix. So you know, some of them are, are failed planets that didn't really get big enough. Oh. Uh, so they're kind of small small planets that it formed, and we call them planetesimals. Uh, some of them actually are pieces of planets. So we have chunks of Mars. Uh, we've got over 300 pieces of Mars uh, in the form of meteorites, which is nice because we don't have pieces of Mars otherwise. Um, and, you know, some of them are, are, you know, possibly pieces of comets, like you mentioned. Uh, there's, there's definitely some speculation on some of the different types of meteorites that have a lot in common with uh, some, some comets that we've been able to study. Speaking, speaking of Mars, do you think Perseverance is getting, you know, beat up by some meteorites over there in Mars? Because, I mean, I mean they've got gravity, do they not? They definitely have gravity. Yeah. Uh, so probably, I mean, chances of, of perseverance getting hit is the same as, you know, a, a mini Cooper getting hit here on, on Earth. So it's, <laughs> it's probably probably not in too much danger statistically, but it's actually uh, some of the rovers found a few different meteorites on Mars uh, as they were driving around. They found a couple iron meteorites, which is kind of really, really cool to think about finding a meteorite on a different planet. So now the average person, if they were to go out, I, I wish I could take everybody on the little tours that we used to do on the ranch in, in Ranchester, Wyoming, when I was a kid. We used to spend hours out there looking at all the rocks that, that were in the open fields, thinking that this has got to be a meteor, man, because it doesn't look like a normal rock. <laughs> yes, uh, it is. It is very common to, to just kind of hunt around and, and look for weird looking rocks. And sometimes you get lucky and sometimes it actually is a meteorite. Uh, but it is it's pretty difficult to tell the difference. Uh, you know, sometimes so the, the easiest way is to actually see one fall, of course. And then, right. you know, it's uh, then, you know, it's a meteorite. Would it not be hot if you were to rush over to it? Uh, actually, they're usually quite cold. So what? they, they kind of have this fireball streak as they come through the atmosphere and then they reach terminal velocity and then, you know, they just kind of drop after that. Uh, but, but these things have been, you know, sitting in, in, you know, sub-zero temperatures of space for, you know, billions of years. So the interior is actually quite frosty, uh, when they fall. So the, the outer millimeter or so is the only thing that, that gets hot. Man, it's, it's, it's like dry ice from outer space. That's yes, even colder actually. Oh my God! Now what? What is crazy? What have you personally learned from all of this? Because I mean, you know, the attraction is is that you keep growing with it. I mean, what? But you've got to be learning new things. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we you know continue to learn uh, in an immense amount. I mean, the study of meteorites didn't really get started until you know we were starting to gear up for the moon. Uh, moon landing. So, you know, this is a very, very young science when it comes to actually what, what we've learned from meteorites. Um, we, you know, my group is is really focused on kind of time scales of how planets form and, and how the sun formed and how, how long this actually takes. Um, so that's one thing we we look at as a group. Uh, and I find that to be really fascinating about how, how fast it takes to form the sun or, or different planets. Just, just the fact that if, if I found one, how old is it? And how could you ever tell? You'd have to meet up with a scientist like yourself. Yeah, so almost all meteorites are, are probably on the order of 4.5 billion years oh old. Uh, I know, with a B. That's really, really old. So this is the very start of the solar system. Uh, you know, there are some some meteorites that come from, like, the surface of Mars or different asteroids that are a little bit younger than that. Some Mars is a geologically active planet, so there are volcanoes that are... So you can get stuff that, are, that is much younger, you know, in the millions of years uh, um, old from, from Mars. But most of them are, are quite old, which is, which is great for us, for people that like to study the very early solar system, because they are these ter- perfect time capsules. Now, how, how did King Tut get his hands on some so he could have that knife? <laughs> Well, you know, talking about light pollution, you know, the ancient Egyptians definitely didn't have any light pollution. So that was that was one benefit. 
Uh, and, and probably what happened is that, you know, they've got large uh, expanses of, of desert and, and probably they, you know, not only they see a lot of meteorites fall, but they, they found probably a significant amount of iron meteorites. And ancient Egypt, uh, they were not able to, to make iron. Humanity wasn't basically able to make iron in its you know, kind of elemental form to make weapons and, and, and metal until kind of you know, 900, 1200 uh, BCE. So you know, in the time of ancient Egypt, if you found a chunk of metal that was this big shiny rock that you know, was hard and, and had all these properties that you couldn't even make uh, with your current technology, you know, that's a pretty valuable thing. And, uh, and, and that's why you know, King Tut probably had a knife uh, that was made of, of meteoritic iron because it was such a valuable, uh, you know, just metal that just couldn't be produced in ancient Egypt. Oh, can you imagine being in a battle with that knife? And, and you're, you're, you're stuck with, you know, a stick, you know, and you take yeah, on that Yeah, you're, you're battling some guy with a, a giant knife or a sword that's made of some metal that you don't even know exists. Yeah, it's, you're fighting a lightsaber or something right now. Wow, yeah, I was going to say, talk about Obi-Wan Kenobi here, man. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's funny, there's actually some stories of, of uh, historical figures that, that uh, you know, say, you know, wielded a, a, a weapon from the heavens. And, you know, so it's possible these you know people were actually using these types of tools in battle and became famous because they had properties that uh, people couldn't create at the time so if we're being pummeled with 100 tons of you know extraterrestrial material what's happening up there with the international space station are they getting hit because i sure don't hear stories about that you know, uh, most of the stuff we get is is in dust form, oh. so I'm sure they're getting hit by by small pieces of dust, and that's not too big of an issue. Uh, so most of the material that actually comes is is in really small dust form. Uh, we're not getting pelted by you know large basketball sized uh, rocks that often. Uh, they do happen, but they're pretty rare. Um, so that's. Uh, that's that's kind of where we are with that. Uh, it's it's not too big of a danger uh, simply because space is so gigantic and there's not that many large items that are hitting us. So when we when we see that falling star, as we always call it, but the meteorite that's that's falling, is it is it large? And then and then because, I mean, how does it make such a large streak across the sky? Uh, it's going really fast. Most of the, the shooting stars that we see are actually small pieces, you know, about the size of a piece of sand. Right. Um, so most of those are actually really, really small pieces. Uh, it's it's rare to have something you know tennis ball softball sized uh, you know that will certainly cause cause a, a streak like that but most of them we see are actually you know kind of sand particles uh, that come into the atmosphere. I mean because I mean that's all I read anymore when I'm, I'm, I'm on my Google News and all that kind of stuff. A meteorite was twenty nine whatever thousand miles from Earth it, and they make them look like they're bigger than a refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, it's it's fun to be sensational about the size of these meteorites. Most of them are pretty small. Uh, you know, it's not going to take too big a one to cause a major issue, uh, you know, on Earth. But but, uh, you know, chances are fairly low. Yeah. So how does the ocean play out in all this? Uh, you know, uh, from a from a contemporary standpoint, I mean, there's large swaths of the ocean that actually receive a lot of, uh, you know, kind of ingredients and, and nutrients from micrometeorites, like we were talking about these little sand particles um, that they don't have, you know, things like phosphorus or iron uh, sources. Uh, so there's, you know, plankton in, in the middle of, let's say, the Atlantic, uh, get a lot of their, you know, phosphorus and iron from above, they get they get micrometeorites. And that's, uh, largely how they are able to survive. So do you think uh, that some of that washes up on the shore and we just think it's part of the sand? Uh, most of it is probably dissolved in the ocean or oh. used by uh, life. Uh, I mean, basically, once a, once a meteorite is, is going to land in a big puddle of salt water, uh, it's not going to last too long. Um, so it's unfortunately ruined for science at that point. 
I kept waiting for you to tell me that, well, the, the meteorites, more of them land at the Bermuda Triangle than any other place on the planet. <laughs> it's like a funnel, yes. <laughs> well, speaking of things like Bermuda Triangle, the, the Aztec text really had kind of a different kind of a vibe about this. They did have a different vibe. Uh, they, they actually believed that meteorites were basically poop from the gods, yep. <laughs> uh, which is which is a really fun way to think about what I study. I love that. Uh, oh, I can't wait to share that with my grandkids. I swear to God, they're uh, going to love it. Look, man, they, they, the gods are <laughs> farting on you right now, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, are you going to turn this into a podcast? Because this is the kind of stuff that I would listen to driving to and from work. Uh, you know, I don't have the, the radio skills that you do, so I, I won't be able to, to, to make that leap, I don't think. I think I'll stick to the safe writing and that I can go back and correct things if, uh, you know, I make a typo or something. What, <laughs> it is really interesting stuff, though. I, I, I hope somebody, you know, uh, does that. Well, you, you do make it interesting and you make it, you know, like a like a, a coffee table book. You know what I'm saying? It's like I, it's one of those where you don't want to set it in your, your where you put normal books. You want it to be there to where that when boring TV is on, I can pick it up and I can pick something up from my imagination. Well, thanks for saying that. I, I really tried to make it uh, interesting to as many, pe- as many people as possible. Uh, there's a lot of you know science books out there that are that are not really accessible to non-experts, and I, I definitely wanted as many people as possible to to be able to read this and, and understand why we do what we do and, and what meteorites have given us as a as a planet and culture. So why why did it take so long to to study meteorites? Why did it have to take the trip to the moon? Because I mean, because we've always been interested in outer space. You know, we have. Uh, why it took so long is, is a great question. Uh, part of it was technology. Uh, part of it was that the technology that was invented to go to the moon and to study samples from the moon uh, parlays perfectly into studying meteorites. And that technology just simply didn't exist before. We could look at them and we could say, okay, through a microscope, these are different objects, but, but getting at how different they are and what that actually means uh, wasn't really possible until we had the machinery and technology that, uh, that the space race basically created. Um, so that's that's definitely part of it is the technology aspect. The, the Chinese landed on an asteroid last year and they, and that brought back some some physical evidence of that. I mean, you do you find that fascinating? And do you think we're going to do that more often? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, the, the JAXA or the Japanese Space Agency brought mm-hmm. back pieces of uh, Ryugu, uh, which was a. a, a, a what's called a carbonaceous chondrite type uh, meteorite. And, and actually NASA is doing the same with OSIRIS Rex mission. And uh, it's really fascinating. You know, I like to think of it as bringing the meteorites home, uh, <laughs> you know, going, going to the meteorites and, and bringing them home. Uh, but yeah, these represents really, really pristine samples that have, you know, obviously no adulteration from, from earth. Uh, and, it, and it's really a, a cool thing to be able to, to be part of. I look forward to being able to get some of those samples for sure. Well, speaking of samples, how would you like to get some of those samples that Perseverance is picking up right now? I mean, I mean, I realize we're years away from even just looking at it, but wouldn't you like to be first in line? Oh man, man, I, I hope I'm still in science when those come back. Uh, I, I really hope so because it's super interesting. And, and while I, my fury, yeah, while my, uh, you know, part of study is not really looking at, at life in clays and things like that. Uh, man, it's interesting stuff. I, I really love the kind of risks and, and cool things that we're doing up in space. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's almost become cool again. I mean, I mean, I, I love the fact that people are interested in what's going on up there. Yeah, I mean, this is what happens when we start, you know, sending cool things to cool places. Uh, exploration is is something that that humans have always loved to do, and 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 restarting that program is really really important, and it inspires you know kind of the youth to get involved, and then you got even even brighter minds coming up behind us. It's great. Wow, you, dude, you got to come back to this show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you. 
Hey, thanks a lot. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Well, you be brilliant today, okay? (laughs) All right. The same to you, man.